ready to deliver rails for another year and declined to recognize us as competitors. The price of steel rails when we began was about $70 per ton. We sent our agent through the country with instructions to take orders at the best prices he could obtain, and before our competitors knew it, we had obtained a large number, quite sufficient to justify us in making a start. So perfect was the machinery, so admirable the plans, so skillful were the men selected by Captain Jones, and so great a manager was he himself, that our success was phenomenal. I think I place a unique statement on record when I say that the result of the first month's operations left a margin of profit of $11,000. It is also remarkable that so perfect was our system of accounts that we knew the exact amount of the profit. We had learned from experience in our ironworks what exact accounting meant. There is nothing more profitable than clerks to check up each transfer of material from one department to another in process of manufacture. The new venture in steel having started off so promisingly, I began to think of taking a holiday, and my long-cherished purpose of going around the world came to the front. Mr. J. W. Vandevort, Vandy, and I accordingly set out in the autumn of 1878. I took with me several pads suitable for penciling, and began to make a few notes day by day, not with any intention of publishing a book, but thinking, perhaps, I might print a few copies of my notes for private circulation. The sensation which one has when he first sees his remarks in the form of a printed book is great. When the package came from the printers, I reread the book, trying to decide whether it was worth while to send copies to my friends. I came to the conclusion that upon the whole it was best to do so, and await the verdict. The writer of a book, designed for his friends, has no reason to anticipate an unkind reception, but there is always some danger of its being damned with faint praise. The responses in my case, however, exceeded expectations, and were of such a character as to satisfy me that the writers really had enjoyed the book, or meant at least a part of what they said about it. Every author is prone to believe sweet words. Among the first that came were in a letter from Anthony Drexel, Philadelphia's great banker, complaining that I had robbed him of several hours of sleep. Having begun the book, he could not lay it down and retired at two o'clock in the morning after finishing. Several similar letters were received. I remember Mr. Huntington, president of the Central Pacific Railway, meeting me one morning and saying he was going to pay me a great compliment. "'What is it?' I asked. "'Oh, I read your book from end to end.' "'Well,' I said, "'that is not such a great compliment. "'Others of our mutual friends have done that.' "'Oh, yes, but probably none of your friends are like me. "'I have not read a book for years except my ledger, "'and I did not intend to read yours. "'But when I began it, I could not lay it down. "'My ledger is the only book I have gone through for five years.' I was not disposed to credit all that my friends said, but others who had obtained the book from them were pleased with it, and I lived for some months under intoxicating, but I trust not perilously pernicious, flattery. Several editions of the book were printed to meet the request for copies. Some notices of it and extracts got into the papers, and finally Charles Scribner's sons asked to publish it for the market. So, round the world came before the public, and I was at last an author. A new horizon was opened up to me by this voyage. It quite changed my intellectual outlook. Spencer and Darwin were then high in the zenith, and I had become deeply interested in their work. I began to view the various phases of human life from the standpoint of the evolutionist. In China, I read Confucius. In India, Buddha, and the sacred books of the Hindus. Among the Parsis, in Bombay, I studied Zoroaster. The result of my journey was to bring a certain mental peace. Where there had been chaos, there was now order. My mind was at rest. I had a philosophy at last. The words of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is within you, had a new meaning for me. Not in the past, or in the future, but now and here is heaven within us. All our duties lie in this world, and in the present, and trying impatiently to peer into that which lies beyond is as vain as fruitless. 
all the remnants of theology in which I had been born and bred, all the impressions that Swedenborg had made upon me, now ceased to influence me or to occupy my thoughts. I found that no nation had all the truth in the revelation it regards as divine, and no tribe is so low as to be left without some truth, that every people has had its great teacher, Buddha for one, Confucius for another, Zoroaster for a third, Christ for a fourth. The teachings of all these I found ethically akin, so that I could say with Matthew Arnold, one I was so proud to call friend, Children of men, the unseen power, whose eye forever doth accompany mankind, hath looked on no religion scornfully that men did ever find, which has not taught weak wills how much they can, which has not fallen in the dry heart like rain, which has not cried to sunk self-weary man, thou must be born again. The Light of Asia by Edwin Arnold came out at this time, and gave me greater delight than any similar poetical work I had recently read. I had just been in India, and the book took me there again. My appreciation of it reached the author's ears, and later, having made his acquaintance in London, he presented me with the original manuscript of the book. It is one of my most precious treasures. Every person who can, even at a sacrifice, make the voyage around the world should do so. All other travel compared to it seems incomplete, gives us merely vague impressions of parts of the whole. When the circle has been completed, you feel on your return that you have seen, of course only in the mass, all there is to be seen. The parts fit into one symmetrical whole, and you see humanity, wherever it is placed, working out a destiny tending to one definite end. The world traveler who gives careful study to the Bibles of the various religions of the East will be well repaid. The conclusion reached will be that the inhabitants of each country consider their own religion the best of all. They rejoice that their lot has been cast where it is, and are disposed to pity the less fortunate condemned to live beyond their sacred limits. The masses of all nations are usually happy, each mass certain that, East or West, home is best. Two illustrations of this from our round-the-world trip may be noted. Visiting the tapioca workers in the woods near Singapore, we found them busily engaged, the children running about stark naked, the parents clothed in the usual loose rags. Our party attracted great attention. We asked our guide to tell the people that we came from a country where the water in such a pond as that before us would become solid at the season of the year and we could walk upon it, and that sometimes it would be so hard horses and wagons crossed wide rivers on the ice. They wondered and asked why we didn't come and live among them. They really were very happy. Again, on the way to the North Cape, we visited a reindeer camp of the Laplanders. A sailor from the ship was deputed to go with the party. I walked homeward with him, and as we approached the fjord looking down and over to the opposite shore, we saw a few straggling huts and one two-story house under construction. "'What is that new building for?' we asked. "'That is to be the home of a man born in Tromso, who has made a great deal of money and has now come back to spend his days there. He is very rich.' You told me you had traveled all over the world. You have seen London, New York, Calcutta, Melbourne, and other places. If you made a fortune like that man, what place would you make your home in old age? His eye glistened as he said, Ah, there's no place like Tromso. This is in the Arctic Circle, six months of night, but he had been born in Tromso. Home, sweet, sweet home. Among the conditions of life, or the laws of nature, some of which seem to us faulty, some apparently unjust and merciless, there are many that amaze us by their beauty and sweetness. Love of home, regardless of its character or location, certainly is one of these. And what a pleasure it is to find that, instead of the Supreme Being confining revelation to one race or nation, every race has the message best adapted for it in its present stage of development. The unknown power has neglected none. End of chapter 14. Recording by William Tomko. Chapter 15 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie 
by Andrew Carnegie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 15. Coaching Trip and Marriage. The freedom of my native town, Dunfermline, was conferred upon me July 12, 1877, the first freedom and the greatest honor I ever received. I was overwhelmed. Only two signatures upon the roll came between mine and Sir Walter Scott's, who had been made a Burgess. My parents had seen him one day sketching Dunfermline Abbey and often told me about his appearance. My speech in reply to the freedom was a subject of much concern. I spoke to my uncle Bailey Morrison, telling him I just felt like saying so-and-so, as this really was in my heart. He was an orator himself, and he spoke words of wisdom to me then. Just say that, Andra. Nothing like saying just what you really feel. It was a lesson in public speaking which I took to heart. There was one rule I might suggest for youthful orators. When you stand up before an audience, reflect that there are before you only men and women. You should speak to them as you speak to other men and women in daily intercourse. If you are not trying to be something different from yourself, there is no more occasion for embarrassment than if you were talking in your office to a party of your own people. None whatever. It is trying to be other than oneself that unmans one. Be your own natural self and go ahead. I once asked Colonel Ingersoll, the most effective public speaker I ever heard, to what he attributed his power. Avoid elocutionists like snakes, he said, and be yourself. I spoke again at Dunfermline, July twenty seventh, 1881, when my mother laid the foundation stone there of the first free library building I ever gave. My father was one of five weavers who founded the earliest library in the town by opening their own books to their neighbors. Dunfermline named the building I gave Carnegie Library. The architect asked for my coat of arms. I informed him I had none, but suggested that above the door there might be carved a rising sun shedding its rays with the motto, Let there be light. This he adopted. We had come up to Dunfermline with the coaching party. When walking through England in the year 1867 with George Lauder and Harry Phipps, I had formed the idea of coaching from Brighton to Inverness with a party of my dearest friends. The time had come for the long-promised trip, and in the spring of 1881 we sailed from New York, a party of eleven, to enjoy one of the happiest excursions of my life. It was one of the holidays from business that kept me young and happy, worth all the medicine in the world. All the notes I made of the coaching trip were a few lines a day in two penny pass books bought before we started. As with Round the World, I thought that I might some day write a magazine article or give some account of my excursion for those who accompanied me, but one wintry day I decided that it was scarcely worth while to go down to the New York office, three miles distant, and the question was how I should occupy the spare time. I thought of the coaching trip and decided to write a few lines just to see how I should get on. The narrative flowed freely, and before the day was over, I had written between three and four thousand words. I took up the pleasing task every stormy day when it was unnecessary for me to visit the office, and in exactly twenty sittings I had finished a book. I handed the notes to Scribner's people and asked them to print a few hundred copies for private circulation. The volume pleased my friends, as round the world had done. Mr. Champlin one day told me that Mr. Scribner had read the book and would like very much to publish it for general circulation upon his own account, subject to a royalty. The vain author is easily persuaded that what he has done is meritorious, and I consented. Every year this still nets me a small sum in royalties, and thirty years have gone by, 1912. The letters I received upon the publication of it were so numerous and some so gushing that my people saved them, and they are now bound together in scrapbook form, to which additions are made from time to time. The number of invalids who have been pleased to write me, stating that the book had brightened their lives, has been gratifying. Its reception in Britain was cordial. The spectator gave it a favorable review. But any merit that the book has, 
comes, I am sure, from the total absence of effort on my part to make an impression. I wrote for my friends, and what one does easily, one does well. I reveled in the writing of the book as I had in the journey itself. The year 1886 ended in deep gloom for me. My life as a happy, careless young man, with every want looked after, was over. I was left alone in the world. My mother and brother passed away in November, within a few days of each other, while I lay in bed under a severe attack of typhoid fever, unable to move and, perhaps fortunately, unable to feel the full weight of the catastrophe being myself face to face with death. I was the first stricken, upon returning from a visit in the east to our cottage at Crescent Springs on top of the Alleghanies, where my mother and I spent our happy summers. I had been quite unwell for a day or two before leaving New York. A physician being summoned, my trouble was pronounced typhoid fever. Professor Dennis was called from New York, and he corroborated the diagnosis. An attendant physician and trained nurse were provided at once. Soon after, my mother broke down, and my brother in Pittsburgh also was reported ill. I was despaired of. I was so low. And then my whole nature seemed to change. I became reconciled, indulged in pleasing meditations, was without the slightest pain. My mother's and brother's serious condition had not been revealed to me, and when I was informed that both had left me forever, it seemed only natural that I should follow them. We had never been separated. Why should we be now? But it was decreed otherwise. I recovered slowly, and the future began to occupy my thoughts. There was only one ray of hope and comfort in it. Toward that my thoughts always turned. For several years I had known Miss Louise Whitfield. Her mother permitted her to ride with me in the Central Park. We were both very fond of riding. Other young ladies were on my list. I had fine horses and often rode in the park and around New York with one or the other of the circle. In the end the others all faded into ordinary beings. Miss Whitfield remained alone as the perfect one beyond any I had met. Finally, I began to find and admit to myself that she stood the supreme test I had applied to several fair ones in my time. She alone did so of all I had ever known. I could recommend young men to apply this test before offering themselves. If they can honestly believe the following lines, as I did, then all is well. Full many a lady I've eyed with best regard, for several virtues have I liked several women, never any with so full soul but some defect in her did quarrel with the noblest grace she owed, and put it to the foil, but you, O oh you, so perfect and so peerless, are created of every creature's best. In my soul I could echo those very words. Today, after twenty years of life with her, if I could find stronger words I could truthfully use them. My advances met with indifferent success. She was not without other and younger admirers. My wealth and future plans were against me. I was rich and had everything, and she felt she could be of little use or benefit to me. Her ideal was to be the real helpmeet of a young, struggling man to whom she could and would be indispensable, as her mother had been to her father. The care of her own family had largely fallen upon her after her father's death, when she was twenty-one. She was now twenty-eight. Her views of life were formed. At times she seemed more favorable, and we corresponded. Once, however, she returned my letters, saying she felt she must put aside all thought of accepting me. Professor and Mrs. Dennis took me from Crescent to their own home in New York as soon as I could be removed, and I lay there some time under the former's personal supervision. Miss Whitfield called to see me, for I had written her the first words from Crescent I was able to write. She saw now that I needed her. I was left alone in the world. Now she could be in every sense the helpmeet. Both her heart and head were now willing, and the day was fixed. We were married in New York April twenty-second, 1887, and sailed for our honeymoon, which was passed on the Isle of Wright. Her delight was intense in finding the wildflowers. She had read of Wandering Willie, Heart's Ease, Forget-Me-Nots, The Primrose, wild time, and the whole list of homely names that had been to her only names till now. Everything charmed her. 
Uncle Lauder, and one of my cousins came down from Scotland and visited us, and then we soon followed to the residence at Kilgraston they had selected for us in which to spend the summer. Scotland captured her. There was no doubt about that. Her girlish reading had been of Scotland, Scots novels and Scottish chiefs being her favorites. She soon became more Scotch than I. All this was fulfilling my fondest dream. We spent some days in Dunfermline and enjoyed them much. The haunts and incidents of my boyhood were visited and recited to her by all and sundry. She got nothing but flattering accounts of her husband, which gave me a good start with her. I was presented with the freedom of Edinburgh as we passed northward, Lord Rosebery making the speech. The crowd in Edinburgh was great. I addressed the working men in the largest hall and received a present from them, as did Mrs. Carnegie also, a brooch she values highly. She heard and saw the pipers in all their glory and begged there should be one at our home, a piper to walk around and waken us in the morning and also to play us into dinner. American as she is to the core, and Connecticut Puritan at that, she declared that if condemned to live upon a lonely island and allowed to choose only one musical instrument, it would be the pipes. The piper was secured quickly enough. One called and presented credentials from Clooney McPherson. We engaged him and were preceded by him playing the pipes as we entered our Kilgraston house. We enjoyed Kilgraston, although Mrs. Carnegie still longed for a wilder and more highland home. Matthew Arnold visited us, as did Mr. and Mrs. Blaine, Senator and Mrs. Eugene Hale, and many friends. Mrs. Carnegie would have my relatives up from Dunfermline, especially the older uncles and aunties. She charmed every one. They expressed their surprise to me that she ever married me, but I told them I was equally surprised. The match had evidently been predestined. We took our piper with us when we returned to New York, and also our housekeeper and some of the servants. Mrs. Nicholl remains with us still, and is now, after twenty years' faithful service, as a member of the family. George Irvin, our butler, came to us a year later, and is also as one of us. Maggie Anderson, one of the servants, is the same. They are devoted people of high character and true loyalty. The next year we were offered and took Clooney Castle. Our piper was just the man to tell us all about it. He had been born and bred there, and perhaps influenced our selection of that residence where we spent several summers. On March 30, 1897, there came to us our daughter. As I first gazed upon her, Mrs. Carnegie said, Her name is Margaret, after your mother. Now one request I have to make. What is it, Lou? We must get a summer home, since this little one has been given us. We cannot rent one, and be obliged to go in and go out at a certain date. It should be our home. Yes, I agreed. I make only one condition. What is that? I asked. It must be in the highlands of Scotland. Bless you, was my reply. That suits me. You know I have to keep out of the sun's rays, and where can we do that so surely as among the heather? I'll be a committee of one to inquire and report. Skibo Castle was the result. It is now twenty years since Mrs. Carnegie entered and changed my life. A few months after the passing of my mother and only brother left me alone in the world. My life had been made so happy by her that I cannot imagine myself living without her guardianship. I thought I knew her when she stood Ferdinand's test, but it was only the surface of her qualities I had seen and felt. Of their purity, holiness, wisdom, I had not sounded the depth. In every emergency of our active, changing, and in later years somewhat public life, and all her relations with others, including my family and her own, she has proved the diplomat and peacemaker. Peace and goodwill attend her footsteps wherever her blessed influence extends. In the rare instances demanding heroic action, it is she who first realizes this and plays the part. The peacemaker has never had a quarrel in all her life, not even with a schoolmate, and there does not live a soul upon the earth who has met her who has the slightest cause to complain of neglect. Not that she does not welcome the best and gently avoid the undesirable, none is more fastidious than she, but neither rank, wealth, nor social position affects her one iota. 
she is incapable of acting or speaking rudely. All is in perfect good taste. Still, she never lowers the standard. Her intimates are only of the best. She is always thinking how she can do good to those around her. Planning for this one and that in case of need, and making such judicious arrangements of presence as surprise those cooperating with her. I cannot imagine myself going through these twenty years without her, nor can I endure the thought of living after her. In the course of nature I have not that to meet, but then the thought of what will be cast upon her, a woman left alone with so much requiring attention, and needing a man to decide, gives me intense pain, and I sometimes wish I had this to endure for her. But then she will have our blessed daughter in her life, and perhaps that will keep her patient. Besides, Margaret needs her more than she does her father. Why, oh why, are we compelled to leave the heaven we have found on earth, and go we know not where? For I can say with Jessica, it is very meet the Lord Bassanio live an upright life. For, having such a blessing in his lady, he finds the joys of heaven here on earth. End of chapter 15 Recording by William Tomko Chapter 16 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie Chapter 16 Mills and the Men The one vital lesson in iron and steel that I learned in Britain was the necessity for owning raw materials and finishing the completed article ready for its purpose. Having solved the steel rail problem at the Edgar Thompson Works, we soon proceeded to the next step. The difficulties and uncertainties of obtaining regular supplies of pig iron compelled us to begin the erection of blast furnaces. Three of these were built, one, however, being a reconstructed blast furnace purchased from the Escanaba Iron Company with which Mr. Cloman had been connected. As is usual in such cases, the furnace cost us as much as a new one, and it never was as good. There is nothing so unsatisfactory as purchases of inferior plants. But, although this purchase was a mistake, directly considered, it proved at a subsequent date a source of great profit, because it gave us a furnace small enough for the manufacture of Spiegel, and at a later date of ferro-manganese. We were the second firm in the United States to manufacture our own Spiegel, and the first, and for years the only firm in America, that made ferro-manganese. We had been dependent upon foreigners for a supply of this indispensable article, paying as high as $80 a ton for it. The manager of our blast furnaces, Mr. Julian Kennedy, is entitled to the credit of suggesting that with the ores within reach we could make ferromanganese in our small furnace. The experiment was worth trying, and the result was a great success. We were able to supply the entire American demand, and prices fell from 80 to $50 per ton as a consequence. While testing the ores of Virginia, we found that these were being quietly purchased by Europeans for ferromanganese, the owners of the mine being led to believe that they were used for other purposes. Our Mr. Phipps at once set about purchasing that mine. He obtained an option from the owners, who had neither capital nor skill to work it efficiently. A high price was paid to them for their interests, and, with one of them, Mr. Davis, a very able young man, we became the owners, but not until a thorough investigation of the mine had proved that there was enough of manganese ore in sight to repay us. All this was done with speed. Not a day was lost when the discovery was made. And here lies the great advantage of a partnership over a corporation. The president of the latter would have had to consult a board of directors and wait several weeks and perhaps months for their decision. By that time, the mine would probably have become the property of others. We continued to develop our blast furnace plant, every new one being a great improvement upon the preceding, until at last we thought we had arrived at a standard furnace. Minor improvements would no doubt be made, but so far as we could see, we had a perfect plant, and our capacity was then 50,000 tons per month of pig iron. 
the blast furnace department was no sooner added than another step was seen to be essential to our independence and success the supply of superior coke was a fixed quantity the connellsville field being defined we found that we could not get on without a supply of the fuel essential to the smelting of pig iron and a very thorough investigation of the question led us to the conclusion that the frick coke company had not only the best coal and coke property but that it had in mr frick himself a man with a positive genius for its management he had proved his ability by starting as a poor railway clerk and succeeding in eighteen eighty two we purchased one half of the stock of this company and by subsequent purchases from other holders we became owners of the great bulk of the shares there now remained to be acquired only the supply of iron stone if we could obtain this we should be in the position occupied by only two or three of the european concerns we thought at one time we had succeeded in discovering in pennsylvania this last remaining link in the chain we were misled, however, in our investment in the Tyrone region, and lost considerable sums as the result of our attempts to mine and use the ores of that section. They promised well at the edges of the mines, where the action of the weather for ages had washed away impurities and enriched the ore, but when we penetrated a small distance they proved too lean to work. Our chemist, Mr. Prowser, was then sent to a Pennsylvania furnace among the hills which we had leased with instructions to analyze all the materials brought to him from the district and to encourage people to bring him specimens of minerals a striking example of the awe inspired by the chemist in those days was that only with great difficulty could he obtain a man or a boy to assist him in the laboratory he was suspected of illicit intercourse with the powers of evil when he undertook to tell by his suspicious-looking apparatus what a stone contained i believe that at last we had to send him a man from our office at pittsburgh one day he sent us a report of analyses of ore remarkable for the absence of phosphorus it was really an ore suitable for making bessemer steel such a discovery attracted our attention at once the owner of the property was moses thompson a rich farmer proprietor of seven thousand acres of the most beautiful agricultural land in centre county pennsylvania an appointment was made to meet him upon the ground from which the ore had been obtained. We found the mine had been worked for a charcoal blast furnace fifty or sixty years before, but it had not borne a good reputation then, the reason no doubt being that its product was so much purer than other ores that the same amount of flux used caused trouble in smelting. It was so good, it was good for nothing in those days of old. We finally obtained the right to take the mine over at any time within six months and we therefore began the work of examination, which every purchaser of mineral property should make most carefully. We ran lines across the hillside fifty feet apart, with cross lines at distances of a hundred feet apart, and at each point of intersection we put a shaft down through the ore. I believe there were eighty such shafts in all, and the ore was analyzed at every few feet of depth, so that before we paid over the hundred thousand dollars asked, we knew exactly what there was of ore. The result hoped for was more than realized. Through the ability of my cousin and partner, Mr. Lauder, the cost of mining and washing was reduced to a low figure, and the Scotia ore made good all the losses we had incurred in the other mines, paid for itself, and left a profit besides. In this case, at least, we snatched victory from the jaws of defeat, and we trod upon sure ground with the chemist as our guide it will be seen that we were determined to get raw materials and were active in the pursuit we had lost and won but the escapes in business affairs are sometimes very narrow driving with mr phipps from the mills one day we passed the national trust company office on penn street pittsburgh i noticed the large gilt letters across the window stockholders individually liable that very morning, in looking over a statement of our affairs, I had noticed twenty shares National Trust Company on the list of assets. I said to Harry, If this is the concern we own shares in, won't you please sell them before you return to the office this afternoon? He saw no need for haste. It would be done in good time. No, Harry, oblige me by doing it instantly. He did so and had it transferred. Fortunate indeed was this, for in a short time the bank failed with an enormous deficit. 
My cousin, Mr. Morris, was among the ruined shareholders. Many others met the same fate. Times were panicky, and had we been individually liable for all the debts of the National Trust Company, our credit would inevitably have been seriously imperiled. It was a narrow escape, and with only twenty shares, two thousand dollars worth of stock, taken to oblige friends who wished our name on their list of shareholders. The lesson was not lost. The sound rule in business is that you may give money freely when you have a surplus, but your name never neither as endorser nor as member of a corporation with individual liability. A trifling investment of a few thousand dollars, a mere trifle, yes, but a trifle possessed of deadly explosive power. The rapid substitution of steel for iron in the immediate future had become obvious to us. Even in our Keystone Bridge works, steel was being used more and more in place of iron. King Iron was about to be deposed by the new King Steel, and we were becoming more and more dependent upon it. We had about concluded, in 1886, to build alongside of the Edgar Thompson Mills new works for the manufacture of miscellaneous shapes of steel, when it was suggested to us that the five or six leading manufacturers of Pittsburgh, who had combined to build steel mills at Homestead, were willing to sell their mills to us. These works had been built originally by a syndicate of manufacturers, with the view of obtaining the necessary supplies of steel which they required in their various concerns. But the steel rail business, being then in one of its booms, they had been tempted to change plans and construct a steel rail mill. They had been able to make rails as long as prices remained high, but, as the mills had not been specially designed for this purpose, they were without the indispensable blast furnaces for the supply of pig iron, and had no coke lands for the supply of fuel. They were in no condition to compete with us. It was advantageous for us to purchase these works. I felt there was only one way we could deal with their owners, and that was to propose a consolidation with Carnegie Brothers and Company. We offered to do so on equal terms, every dollar they had invested to rank against our dollars. Upon this basis, the negotiation was promptly concluded. We, however, gave to all parties the option to take cash, and most fortunately for us, all elected to do so, except Mr. George Singer, who continued with us to his and our entire satisfaction. Mr. Singer told us afterwards that his associates had been greatly exercised as to how they could meet the proposition I was to lay before them. They were much afraid of being overreached, but when I proposed equality all around, dollar for dollar, they were speechless. This purchase led to the reconstruction of all our firms. The new firm of Carnegie, Phipps & Company was organized in 1886 to run the Homestead Mills. The firm of Wilson, Walker & Company was embraced in the firm of Carnegie, Phipps & Company, Mr. Walker being elected chairman. My brother was chairman of Carnegie Brothers & Company and at the head of all. A further extension of our business was the establishing of the Hartman Steelworks at Beaver Falls, designed to work into a hundred various forms the product of the Homestead Mills. So now we made almost everything in steel, from a wire nail up to a 20-inch steel girder, and it was then not thought probable that we should enter into any new field. It may be interesting here to note the progress of our works during the decade 1888 to 1897. In 1888 we had 20 millions of dollars invested. In 1897 more than double, or over 45 millions. The 600,000 tons of pig iron we made per annum in 1888 was trebled. We made nearly 2 million. Our product of iron and steel was in 1888, say, 2,000 tons per day. It grew to exceed 6,000 tons. Our coke works then embraced about 5,000 ovens. They were trebled in number, and our capacity, then 6,000 tons, became 18,000 tons per day. Our Frick Coke Company in 1897 had 42,000 acres of coal land, more than two-thirds of the true Connellsville vein. Ten years hence, increased production may be found to have been equally rapid. It may be accepted as an axiom that a manufacturing concern in a growing country like ours begins to decay when it stops extending. To make a ton of steel, one and a half tons of iron stone has to be mined.
transported by rail a hundred miles to the lakes, carried by boat hundreds of miles, transferred to cars, transported by rail one hundred and fifty miles to Pittsburgh, one and a half tons of coal must be mined and manufactured into coke and carried fifty-odd miles by rail, and one ton of limestone mined and carried one hundred and fifty miles to Pittsburgh. How then could steel be manufactured and sold without loss at three pounds for two cents? This, I confess, seemed to me incredible, and little less than miraculous. But it was so. America is soon to change from being the dearest steel manufacturing country to the cheapest. Already the shipyards of Belfast are our customers. This is but the beginning. Under present conditions, America can produce steel as cheaply as any other land, notwithstanding its higher-priced labor. There is no labor so cheap as the dearest in the mechanical field, provided it is free, contented, zealous, and reaping reward as it renders service. And here America leads. One great advantage which America will have in competing in the markets of the world is that her manufacturers will have the best home market. Upon this they can depend for a return upon capital, and the surplus product can be exported with advantage. Even when the prices received for it do not more than cover actual cost, provided the exports be charged with their proportion of all expenses. The nation that has the best home market, especially if products are standardized, as ours are, can soon outsell the foreign producer. The phrase I used in Britain in this connection was, the law of the surplus and afterward came into general use in commercial discussions. End of chapter 16 Recording by William Tomko Chapter 17 of Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko Autobiography of Andrew Carnegie by Andrew Carnegie Chapter 17 The Homestead Strike While upon the subject of our manufacturing interests, I may record that on July 1, 1892, during my absence in the Highlands of Scotland, there occurred the one really serious quarrel with our workmen in our whole history. For twenty-six years I had been actively in charge of the relations between ourselves and our men, and it was the pride of my life to think how delightfully satisfactory these had been and were. I hope I fully deserved what my chief partner, Mr. Phipps, said in his letter to the New York Herald, January thirtieth, 1904, in reply to one who had declared I had remained abroad during the homestead strike, instead of flying back to support my partners. It was to the effect that I was always disposed to yield to the demands of the men, however unreasonable. Hence, one or two of my partners did not wish me to return. Taking no account of the reward that comes from feeling that you and your employees are friends, and judging only from economical results, I believe that higher wages to men who respect their employers and are happy and contented are a good investment, yielding, indeed, big dividends." the manufacture of steel was revolutionized by the bessemer open hearth and basic inventions the machinery hitherto employed had become obsolete and our firm recognizing this spent several millions at homestead reconstructing and enlarging the works the new machinery made about sixty per cent more steel than the old two hundred and eighteen tonnage men that is men who were paid by the ton of steel produced were working under a three years contract part of the last year being with the new machinery. Thus, their earnings had increased almost 60% before the end of the contract. The firm offered to divide this 60% with them in the new scale to be made thereafter. That is to say, the earnings of the men would have been 30% greater than under the old scale, and the other 30% would have gone to the firm to recompense it for its outlay. The work of the men would not have been much harder than it had been hitherto, as the improved machinery did the work. This was not only fair and liberal, it was generous, and under ordinary circumstances would have been accepted by the men with thanks. But the firm was then engaged in making armor for the United States government, which we had declined twice to manufacture, and which was urgently needed. It had also the contract to furnish material for the Chicago exhibition. 
Some of the leaders of the men, knowing these conditions, insisted upon demanding the whole sixty percent, thinking the firm would be compelled to give it. The firm could not agree, nor should it have agreed to such an attempt as this to take it by the throat and say, stand and deliver. It very rightly declined. Had I been at home, nothing would have induced me to yield to this unfair attempt to extort up to this point all had been right enough the policy i had pursued in cases of difference with our men was that of patiently waiting reasoning with them and showing them that their demands were unfair but never attempting to employ new men in their places never the superintendent of homestead however was assured by the three thousand men who were not concerned in the dispute that they could run the works and were anxious to rid themselves of the two hundred and eighteen men who had banded themselves into a union and into which they had hitherto refused to admit those in other departments only the heaters and rollers of steel being eligible my partners were misled by the superintendent who was himself misled he had not great experience in such affairs having recently been promoted from a subordinate position the unjust demands of the few union men and the opinion of the three thousand non-union men that they were unjust very naturally led him into thinking there would be no trouble and that the workmen would do as they had promised there were many men among the three thousand who could take and wished to take the places of the two hundred and eighteen at least so it was reported to me it is easy to look back and say that the vital step of opening the works should never have been taken. All the firm had to do was to say to the men, There is a labor dispute here, and you must settle it between yourselves. The firm has made you a most liberal offer. The works will run when the dispute is adjusted, and not till then. Meanwhile, your places remain open to you. Or, it might have been well if the superintendent had said to the three thousand men, All right, if you will come and run the works without protection, thus throwing upon them the responsibility of protecting themselves, three thousand men as against two hundred and eighteen. Instead of this, it was thought advisable, as an additional precaution by the state officials, I understand, to have the sheriff with guards to protect the thousands against the hundreds. The leaders of the latter were violent and aggressive men. They had guns and pistols, and, as was soon proved, were able to intimidate the thousands. I quote what I once laid down in writing as our rule. My idea is that the company should be known as determined to let the men at any works stop work, that it will confer freely with them and wait patiently until they decide to return to work, never thinking of trying new men. Never the best men as men and the best workmen are not walking the streets looking for work only the inferior class as a rule is idle the kind of men we desired are rarely allowed to lose their jobs even in dull times it is impossible to get new men to run successfully the complicated machinery of a modern steel plant the attempt to put in new men converted the thousands of old men who desired to work into lukewarm supporters of our policy for workmen can always be relied upon to resent the employment of new men who can blame them if i had been at home however i might have been persuaded to open the works as the superintendent desired to test whether our old men would go to work as they had promised but it should be noted that the works were not opened at first by my partners for new men on the contrary it was as i was informed upon my return at the wish of the thousands of our old men that they were opened this is a vital point my partners were in no way blamable for making the trial so recommended by the superintendent our rule never to employ new men but to wait for the old to return had not been violated so far in regard to the second opening of the works after the strikers had shot the sheriff's officers it is also easy to look back and say how much better had the works been closed until the old men voted to return but the governor of pennsylvania with eight thousand troops had meanwhile taken charge of the situation i was travelling in the highlands of scotland when the trouble arose and did not hear of it until two days later nothing i have ever had to meet in all my life before or since wounded me so deeply no pangs remain of any wound received in my business career save that of homestead it was so unnecessary the men were outrageously wrong the strikers with the new machinery would have made from four to nine dollars a day under the new scale thirty per cent more than they were making with the old machinery 
While in Scotland, I received the following cable from the officers of the union of our workmen. Kind master, tell us what you wish us to do, and we shall do it for you. This was most touching, but alas, too late. The mischief was done. The works were in the hands of the governor. It was too late. I received, while abroad, numerous kind messages from friends conversant with the circumstances who imagined my unhappiness. The following from Mr. Gladstone was greatly appreciated. My dear Mr. Carnegie, my wife has long ago offered her thanks, with my own, for your most kind congratulations. But I do not forget that you have been suffering yourself from anxieties, and have been exposed to imputations in connection with your gallant efforts to direct rich men into a course of action more enlightened than that which they usually follow. I wish I could relieve you from these imputations of journalists, too often rash, conceited, or censorious, rancorous, ill-natured, I wish to do the little, the very little, that is in my power, which is simply to say how sure I am that no one who knows you will be prompted by the unfortunate occurrences across the water, of which manifestly we cannot know the exact merits, to qualify in the slightest degree either his confidence in your generous views or his admiration of the good and great work you have already done. Wealth is at present like a monster threatening to swallow up the moral life of man. You, by precept and by example, have been teaching him to disgorge. I, for one, thank you. Believe me, very faithfully yours, signed W. E. Gladstone. I insert this as giving proof, if proof were needed, of Mr. Gladstone's large, sympathetic nature, alive and sensitive to everything transpiring of a nature to arouse sympathy. Neapolitans, Greeks, and Bulgarians one day, or a stricken friend the next. The general public, of course, did not know that I was in Scotland, and knew nothing of the initial trouble at Homestead. Workmen had been killed at the Carnegie Works, of which I was the controlling owner. That was sufficient to make my name a byword for years. But at last some satisfaction came. Senator Hanna was president of the National Civic Federation, a body composed of capitalists and workmen which exerted a benign influence over both employers and employed, and the Honorable Oscar Strauss, who was then vice president, invited me to dine at his house and meet the officials of the Federation. Before the date appointed Mark Hanna its president, my lifelong friend and former agent at Cleveland had suddenly passed away. I attended the dinner. At its close, Mr. Strauss arose and said that the question of a successor to Mr. Hanna had been considered, and he had to report that every labor organization heard from had favored me for the position. There were present several of the labor leaders who, one after another, arose and corroborated Mr. Strauss. I do not remember so complete a surprise, and I shall confess one so grateful to me, that I deserved well from labor, I felt, I knew myself to be warmly sympathetic with the working man, and also that I had the regard of our own workmen, but throughout the country it was naturally the reverse, owing to the Homestead riot. The Carnegie Works meant to the public Mr. Carnegie's war upon labor's just earnings. I arose to explain to the officials at the Strauss dinner that I could not possibly accept the great honor, because I had to escape the heat of summer, and the head of the Federation must be on hand at all seasons, ready to grapple with an outbreak, should one occur. My embarrassment was great, but I managed to let all understand that this was felt to be the most welcome tribute I could have received, a balm to the hurt mind. I closed by saying that if elected to my lamented friend's place upon the executive committee, I should esteem it an honor to serve. To this position I was elected by unanimous vote. I was thus relieved from the feeling that I was considered responsible by labor generally for the Homestead riot and the killing of workmen. I owed this vindication to Mr. Oscar Strauss, who had read my articles and speeches of early days upon labor questions, and who had quoted these frequently to workmen. The two labor leaders of the Amalgamated Union, White and Schaefer from Pittsburgh, who were at this dinner, were also able and anxious to enlighten their fellow workmen members of the board as to my record with labor, and did not fail to do so. A mass meeting of the workmen and their wives was afterwards held in the library hall at Pittsburgh to greet me, and I addressed them from both my head and my heart.
The one sentence, I remember, and always shall, was to the effect that capital, labor, and employer were a three-legged stool, none before or after the others, all equally indispensable. Then came the cordial handshaking, and all was well. Having thus rejoined hands and hearts with our employees and their wives, I felt that a great weight had been effectually lifted. But I had had a terrible experience, although thousands of miles from the scene. An incident flowing from the homestead trouble is told by my friend, Professor John C. Van Dyke of Rutgers College. In the spring of 1900, I went up from Guaymas on the Gulf of California to the ranch of a friend at La Noria Verde, thinking to have a week's shooting in the mountains of Sonora. The ranch was far enough removed from civilization, and I had expected meeting there only a few Mexicans and many Yaqui Indians, but, much to my surprise, I found an English-speaking man who proved to be an American. I did not have long to wait in order to find out what brought him there, for he was very lonesome and disposed to talk. His name was McLucky, and up to 1892 he had been a skilled mechanic in the employ of the Carnegie Steel Works at Homestead. He was what was called a top hand, received large wages, was married, and at that time had a home and considerable property. In addition, he had been honored by his fellow townsmen and had been made burgomaster of Homestead. When the strike of 1892 came, McLucky naturally sided with the strikers, and in his capacity as burgomaster gave the order to arrest the Pinkerton detectives who had come to Homestead by steamer to protect the works and preserve order. He believed he was fully justified in doing this. As he explained it to me, the detectives were an armed force invading his bailiwick, and he had a right to arrest and disarm them. The order led to bloodshed, and the conflict was begun in real earnest. The story of the strike is, of course, well known to all. The strikers were finally defeated. As for McLucky, he was indicted for murder, riot, treason, and I know not what other offenses. He was compelled to flee from the state, was wounded, starved, pursued by the officers of the law, and obliged to go into hiding until the storm blew over. Then he found that he was blacklisted by all the steel men in the United States and could not get employment anywhere. His money was gone, and as a final blow, his wife died, and his home was broken up. After many vicissitudes, he resolved to go to Mexico, and at the time I met him, he was trying to get employment in the mines about 15 miles from La Noria Verde. But he was too good a mechanic for the Mexicans, who required, in mining, the cheapest kind of unskilled peon labor. He could get nothing to do, and had no money. He was literally down to his last copper. Naturally, as he told the story of his misfortunes, I felt very sorry for him, especially as he was a most intelligent person and did no unnecessary whining about his troubles. I do not think I told him at the time that I knew Mr. Carnegie and had been with him at Clooney in Scotland shortly after the homestead strike, nor that I knew from Mr. Carnegie the other side of the story. But McLucky was rather careful not to blame Mr. Carnegie, saying to me several times that if Andy had been there, the trouble would never have arisen. He seemed to think the boys could get on very well with Andy, but not so well with some of his partners. I was at the ranch for a week and saw a good deal of McLucky in the evenings. When I left there, I went directly to Tucson, Arizona, and from there I had occasion to write to Mr. Carnegie, and in the letter I told him about meeting with McLucky. I added that I felt very sorry for the man and thought he had been treated rather badly. Mr. Carnegie answered at once, and on the margin of the letter wrote in lead pencil, Give McLucky all the money he wants, but don't mention my name. I wrote to McLucky immediately, offering him what money he needed, mentioning no sum, but giving him to understand that it would be sufficient to put him on his feet again. He declined it. He said he would fight it out and make his own way, which was the right enough American spirit. I could not help but admire it in him. As I remember now, I spoke about him later to a friend, Mr. J. A. Noggle, the general manager of the Sonora Railway. At any rate, McClucky got a job with the railway in driving wells and made a great success of it. A year later, or perhaps it was in the autumn of the same year, I again met him at Guaymas, where he was superintending some repairs on his machinery at the railway shops. He was much changed for the better. 
seemed happy, and to add to his contentment, had taken unto himself a Mexican wife. And now that his sky was cleared, I was anxious to tell him the truth about my offer that he might not think unjustly of those who had been compelled to fight him. So, before I left him, I said, McLucky, I want you to know now that the money I offered you was not mine. That was Andrew Carnegie's money. It was his offer, made through me. McLucky was fairly stunned, and all he could say was, Well, that was damned white of Andy, wasn't it? I would rather risk that verdict of McLucky's as a passport to paradise than all the theological dogmas invented by man. I knew McLucky well as a good fellow. It was said his property in Homestead was worth $30,000. He was under arrest for the shooting of the police officers because he was the burgomaster and also the chairman of the men's committee of Homestead. He had to fly, leaving all behind him. After this story got into print, the following skit appeared in the newspapers because I had declared I'd rather have McLucky's few words on my tombstone than any other inscription, for it indicated I had been kind to one of our workmen. Just, by the way, Sandy on Andy. Oh, have ye heard what Andy's speared to 